I um, realized this past week that my kids are more than halfway through the 18 years that they are legally required to live with us. With Tyler being 10 and Nora being 9, uh, that means that uh, in baseball terms, we are in the top of the fifth with one of them and the bottom of the fifth with the other. That's baseball terms, not in other terms. Of. Uh, this is about the time when the starting pitching starts to get rocked in a baseball game, and you have to start looking for some bullpen help. I'm hoping that's not the case um, with, with us and with parenting, but let's be honest, the idea of taking an infant who is born and holding into your arms and in 18 short years helping them to become a fully functioning adult is probably the most intimidating challenge that any of us can ever experience. It feels like we spend so much of our time looking back and wondering where the time went because the time ahead seems so short as parents. And here's the deal. We as Christians have an even bigger challenge ahead of us because we don't just want to raise young people in our church to be decent, moral people. That's not our goal as Christians. We want them to be Christ followers who radically impact the world through God's love and God's truth. And yet there are so many distractions in the world that are calling for our kids' devotion. Many of them are even good things. We feel the pressure for our kids to have the absolute best academics. When you go to look for a new house, you better bet one of the first questions you ask is what school district is it in? We want our kids to have the best and most devoted sports or extracurricular activities. So many times we put the pressure on that, overemphasizing the value of those extracurricular activities. We want them to have the best experiences. We don't want our kids to miss out on anything, do we? Whether it's the best new toys, or the best new video games, or whether it be the best vacations, if they don't get that, somehow we feel guilty as parents. We want them to have the best stuff. We don't want our kids wearing rags to school. And even if we don't want to go spend the money, there's a cultural pressure to maintain a higher level of the Joneses, if you will. And yet, in the midst of all those things, I believe that raising the next generation to be fully devoted followers of Christ should take precedent over all those things that I mentioned. Yes, I believe raising your kids to be fully devoted Christ followers is more important than the education they will receive. It's not that the education isn't important, but what good is the education if they lose their soul? And here's the deal. An hour on Sunday morning isn't going to accomplish that. Uh, while I love what we do on Sunday mornings, and what we do, we have found out in the last year, on Sunday mornings is vital. At the same time, an hour on Sunday is not going to be enough to overcome all the societal pressures that are upon the next generation. 
We need to be all in as families. We need to be devoted to raising up the next generation. And when I say that, I don't just mean moms and dads who have kids who are still living in the home. I mean that whether it be in our immediate families, our extended families, or our church family, we should all be committed to raising up the next generation to be fully devoted followers of Christ. Because the trajectory of the world right now is not pointing towards Christ. The trajectory of the world is pointed away from Christ. Christianity and America is no longer the home team. We're the visiting team. We're the team that's getting booed. And if we want our kids to stick with their faith, to live out their faith, it's going to take all of us being all in and raising the next generation for Christ. We need you. We need all of us together to work together for the next generation. So what does it mean to be radically committed to the next generation? Over the next five weeks, we're going to take a look at Mark chapters 8 through 10 and take a look at some of the teachings that are here as they they are about discipleship. And this is what I want to stress to you. We are responsible to raise our children to be disciples of Jesus. They ultimately have that choice to make as to whether they will continue to walk with that or not. But it is our responsibility to plant the seeds in the most fertile soil, to make sure that that soil is fertilized well, to make sure that that seed is watered well, to make sure as that seed starts to grow that it is protected and that it is nurtured and that we help it to grow to be a strong oak tree. And the first passage we're going to look at today starts in chapter 8, verse 27. And so today I want to talk about, as an introductory message into the all-in family, the idea of the two shifts that we need to make as an all-in family. The two shifts. In other words, our culture is going one way, the shifts that we need to make in another direction. And these two shifts will not be difficult to see today. And I would like to suggest to you that so many of the aspects of parenting is not about intellectual might. So many of the aspects of parenting isn't about having a PhD in parenting. So many of the answers that we see in parenting are very simple to understand, but very difficult to live out. And so you might think even today that this is a little bit simple. Yes, it is. And that's the beauty of it. While we will face complex situations in parenting, I promise you that so many of the principles that we face, that we try to instill on our children, are very, very simple. Simple to understand and yet difficult to put into practice. So here's the two shifts of an all-in family. But first, let's understand what's going on in Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, we have seen a lot of miracles happening prior to chapter 8. We see the disciples being called and following Jesus, and yet the disciples have not yet made that confession. They're all asking the question, who is this Jesus figure? 
But they haven't answered it until chapter 8. In fact, in chapter 4, when Jesus calms the storm, remember he was sleeping on the boat while they were panicking. They woke him up in a panic, and Jesus says, why are you of little faith? Why are you afraid? He calms the storm, and then it doesn't say, but I'd like to think he probably went back to sleep after that because that's kind of when you're in the middle of a nap, somebody wakes you up, that's what you do. But in chapter 4, the disciples asked after that happened, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now we're about to get our answer. And it starts with Jesus taking the disciples away from all the crowds that had been following them. It starts with Jesus walking away from the crowds with his disciples and getting away with them. And so many of the things that we need to do within our family comes with getting away from the crowds as well. It comes with getting away from the crowds of the influence of our world, which is constantly in the palm of your children's hands in today's world. It comes with time with just mom and dad, or grandma and grandpa, or aunts and uncle, and those sacred times that we look back upon and cherish. Jesus, with his disciples, it says in verse 27 that he went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, it's interesting because Caesarea Philippi is actually a pagan stronghold. It was a beautiful place to have a retreat. It was a beautiful place to get away, and it was so beautiful. Think of Sedona, Arizona. Anybody ever been to Sedona, Arizona? Okay, a few of you. Yeah, one of the most beautiful places on earth, but it's also one of the most pagan places, isn't it? Uh, It is filled with witchcraft and everything else because people who tend to worship the earth flock to places like that. This is the type of place that Jesus took the disciples to to get away. And on the road, it says that he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? This is called a leading question. Jesus doesn't start off with the ultimate question. He starts off with the leading question. We could all learn a little bit from Jesus' philosophy for sure. In 28, it says, They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. And then in verse 29, Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. But you, he asked them, but you who do you say that I am? And we don't know if there was a delay. Probably not, because it's Peter who spoke up. Maybe it was the question that Peter had been longing for Jesus to ask for some time so that he could finally make the bold declaration. Maybe it was something that Peter had just resolved recently in his mind. But you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And then in verse 30, Jesus strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Don't worry about verse 30. I'm not going to apply it today. You are still supposed to tell people who Jesus is. That was a situational command. If that was our command today, some of us would be doing quite well, wouldn't we? You are the Messiah. The first shift that we see is from the crowd to confessing. The shift that we need to make amongst our young people and in our families, and even us as adults, needs to go from being a part of the crowd 
from a part of the masses, from a part of the culture and the way that it is headed, to a point of confession. This is the desire for all of our young people, that they would confess Jesus with their lips and in their hearts, and that they ultimately would be baptized into Christ, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that they would start to walk with Christ. Peter's confession went a long way. And what we have to recognize is that we have a very tender scenario with children in the world. There is a thing that's referred to as the 414 window, and that is that 63% of people who come to Christ in America in evangelical type of churches, which is cl- most closely resembles, I suppose, who we are in some ways, they do so between the ages of 4 and 14 years old. 63%. Another 34% do so between the ages of 15 and 29. This number has actually shifted a bit. It was, uh, according to Barna, and when it originally came out in 2004, I believe, it was 85% of children come to Christ in that 4 to 14 window. Whichever statistic from whichever year you want to base things upon, the truth that is revealed here is that if we don't win children to Christ when they are early in age, they ultimately are far less likely to come to Christ. The reality is is that 97% of people come to Christ before they reach the age of 30. Now, maybe you're one of those statistics that proves things wrong, and if you are, congratulations, we rejoice with you. But the reality is, is that us impacting the next generation is vitally important. Right now, as I speak, we have a baptism class going on with, I believe, five or six young people in it who are interested in pursuing baptism, and we rejoice with that, and we celebrate that. In the next hour, we'll have a lot of kids coming into the room, and as COVID starts to, uh, we start to come out of COVID, we expect that number will continue to grow and to grow and to be impacted more and more. The reality is, is that it is vitally important for us to help kids understand that confession that they are making. It's one of the most tender moments to see a parent, a mom, or a dad baptizing their child into Christ. A sacred moment, sacred moment that I've been able to take part in as a parent, once in a hot tub in a church plant, the other in a hot tub in a cabin in Iowa when my son decided that he wanted to be baptized right now. They're tender moments. How are you leading your family, those children that are entrusted to you as kids or grandkids or as your nieces or nephews, or as your neighbors. How are you helping lead them towards a confession of Christ? But the reality is, is that a confession is not the last shift that needs to happen. In fact, oftentimes in our culture, we have failed. We have been quite successful at getting confessions, but we have failed to go to the next step. There's a major problem, as you can see up on the screen, in church dropouts. 
This is among those in ages 18 to 29 years old. And what we saw in that in 2011, in that age group, 59% of kids who grew up in the church dropped out of the church, stopped going to church, stopped confessing Christ. And in 2019, we see, saw that that shift increased in our culture to 50, or excuse me, to 64%. If you're in that age group, 18 to 29, I can tell you that you're in, you're in a very difficult season in your life. But you're also in a season where you can be a dramatic witness to other young people as you stand firm in your faith. But what we see culturally happening is that America is going away from Christianity, by and large. And that doesn't mean that everything in our culture is wrong, but the reality is, is that so many things in our culture are pointing people away from Christ. And the demographics of it all are terrifying. If we start off with the silent generation, those who were born between 1928 and 1945, we see that 84% of them confess Christ. You'll have to get your binoculars out to see this up on the screen. My apologies for not getting a bigger graphic. But what we see, that number drops from 84% to millennials who were born between 1981 and 1996, all the way down to 49%. A time frame of only about 50 years, we go from 84% of those confessing Christ in our culture to 49%. This is an absolute cliff that the bus is being driven off of. And right now, when we see that 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians when asked about their religion, that is down 12 percentage points over the last decade. Meanwhile, the religiously unaffiliated, those that we often refer to as nuns, meaning non-religion, not like the Catholic, you know, all that, but those who have nothing in particular as their religion now stands at 26% which is up from 17% in 2009. Now, I can throw all these statistics at you all you want, but the one that is most troubling to me is that church attendance during this time has grown less and less frequent among people who confess to be believers. And that's where it gets painful, because we can talk about what's going on in the world all we want. We can talk about how, hey, these people don't believe in Christ anymore, what's going on. The reality is, is that among those, among us, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, that church attendance continues on a decline. It used to be you could count on average that people would be here about every other week on average. Now it has gone into more of a monthly shift pattern that you can account for people about once a month. And with COVID and the rebound that we are expecting coming off of COVID, we are expecting that many people will stop going altogether across the board, across churches, whether however strong or however weak they might be. The reality is, is that consumer Christianity that we have created to be a product in our culture is a complete and utter disaster. When we've created Christianity to be just a confession, and then after that, you do whatever you want, however you want, it is a complete and utter disaster. There's no other way to say it. Because the reality is, is that Jesus didn't want us to stop with a confession. While a confession is vitally important for following Christ, it is only the first step. There is a second step that we must see as well, that if we are to, uh, what we call in the church, to, to help the next generation stick to their faith, 
to have a faith that is meaningful and can be lived out in their culture, it takes the second step. Not only do we have to go from the crowd to the confession, but we have to take this second step that we see Jesus talk about in verse 31. Here's what it says. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise again after three days. He spoke openly about this. This is the first time that Jesus is recorded speaking openly about this. He's given us hints before, but this is the first time after he said that, after Peter said, you are the Messiah, you are the chosen one of God. Then Jesus starts talking about crazy stuff. He's going to have to die? How is the Messiah, the anointed one, going to have to die? And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is never a good idea if you try to rebuke Jesus. I do not recommend it. But we've all done it, haven't we? Let's not make Peter the bad guy. We're right there with him. We've all said, God, are you sure about this plan you've got for my life? Lord, this just doesn't seem to be adding up. Are you sure about this? And then verse 33, but then turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Whenever Jesus calls you Satan, that also is not a good sign. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And I wonder in raising the next generation how often we are thinking of human concerns rather than God's concerns. How many times we're thinking about how our children can be successful in the eyes of the world rather than impactful for Christ. And so Jesus has a powwow. He calls the crowd together in verse 34, along with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me in the gospel will save it. For what good does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when he comes in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so we come now to shift number two, which is not nearly as attractive as going from the crowd to the confession. Shift number two is going from confessing Christ to cross-carrying, to taking up our crosses and following Him. This is the yoke of discipleship. There are commonalities amongst us all that look the same, and there are things that are different for all of us as well. Are you willing to help the next generation understand that it's not just about being baptized? It's not just about going to church on Sundays. It's not just about one hour out of your week. It's about every hour out of your week. So as we go from confessing to cross-carrying, I want to ask you some questions. What does it look like to go from confessing to cross-carrying? One shift that we need to make in our families is we need to go from you need to find yourself in the world to you need to lose yourself so you can find yourself in Christ. 
So much of our world today is about finding your identity, finding your identity in all kinds of places. The most prevalent one that's being pressed upon us today is finding your identity in your sex, sexuality. We have become a culture that is so obsessed with sex that we think that we can find our identity in it, and that is an absolute and utter lie. And what we need to talk about is that Jesus talks to us about losing yourself so you can find yourself in Christ. Is there some truth to the idea of finding yourself? Absolutely. But the reality is, is that finding yourself is in who God has created you to be. The second shift we need to make is from you can do anything to God created you for a purpose. The reality is, is your kid can't do anything. My kids can't do anything. I couldn't do anything I wanted to. If your kid is five foot two inches tall and fully grown, they cannot be a center in the NBA. I don't care how hard they try. And the reality is, is that it's a very freeing thing to go from you can do anything to God has created you for a purpose. God has uniquely wired you to contribute to this world in a meaningful way. Next, we see that you can, we need to shift from you can be, uh, you need to be successful to be happy to you can find peace by becoming a servant. We live in a world where we literally worship people who are famous. That's what we do. (laughs) And we need to understand that that puts a tremendous amount of pressure upon our kids. And instead of putting that pressure upon them to contribute in some type of famous way, understanding that that the most famous person of all, Jesus Christ, chose to become a servant to wash the feet of His disciples. So we've got a lot of ground to cover over the next four weeks after today. And while it's going to be important for you to be here each Sunday this next series, I also want to remind you that in 18 years you have less than 1,000 Sundays with your children, but you have almost 10 million minutes. And every one of those minutes can be culture setting for your kids. When you're going down the road in your car to one of the many places that we're running around in today's culture, the types of conversations you have with your kids can be life-changing. When you make decisions about what you watch and don't watch as a family, when you set boundaries about how much screen time they can have, and you get that constant feedback about that, (laughs) it's really tough to have those intentional conversations if our noses and their noses are constantly in a screen. When you're tired, but you still let your kids, you still get the kids together for a prayer and Bible story before bedtime. When you sit down for a meal together and intentionally talk about your only God can moments from the day. When they have a rough day and just need snuggles and encouragement and you drop everything and choose to embrace your children and their hardship that seems like the worst thing that's ever happened to them. You've got 18 years, less than 1,000 Sundays, but almost 10 million minutes. How will you use them? In August of 2003, Scott Drew took a head coaching 
job that nobody wanted. It was a basketball program at a Christian school that was in such utter dysfunction that the previous year, a player on the team was murdered by another player on the team. Drug use was rampant, and the head coach had resigned in such scandalous fashion after being outed as trying to cover up everything that had happened the previous year. It was so bad that Showtime even made a documentary about the whole program called Disgraced. The program was a complete and utter embarrassment for a Christian university. As a committed Christian, Scott took the position in order to, out of a desire to have the freedom to lead a program that exalted Christ, but it would not be easy. The school was on the verge of receiving the so-called death penalty from the NCAA, but instead it received seven years of probation, including one year where they would only be allowed to play conference game in a notoriously difficult Big 12 conference. The school granted an unprecedented, unconditional release to the team. Uh, Anyone who wanted to transfer, they could do so. They could walk away without any penalties. And so Scott coached the first season with only seven players on scholarship, filling out the team with walk-ons, a Division I school and a Power Five conference who had to fill out the team with walk-ons. During his first three years as a coach, Scott Drew, his teams went 21 and 53. But slowly and surely, Drew's influence was starting to take shape. You may have figured out by now that the school I'm referring to is Baylor University, who went from having a murderer on the team to having their leading scorer this year teaching Sunday school at a local church every week when they're not on the road. Baylor joins Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Michigan State as the only Power Five programs to win 18 or more games every year since 2008. This year, they won their first conference title since 1950. (laughs) And on Monday evening, they won their first ever national championship after defeating a previously undefeated Gonzaga University. At the heart of Drew's coaching philosophy is what the team pledges to as a culture of joy. A culture of joy. Joy spelled out simply means Jesus, others, you. You put Jesus first, you put others second, and you put you third. You may have heard the statement, I am third. That's a part of this idea. And it's without question that this philosophy helped Baylor to win a national championship in a season that was notoriously difficult due to COVID is a year that they shined. But it will also be, have very important implications for these young men as they grow into adults and leaders in the society. And as I was watching the national championship game this Monday evening, it hit me that Baylor and Scott Drew, Scott Drew has been at the helm of Baylor now for 18 years. And in 18 years, he's taken the program from being the most scandalous in the nation, the job that nobody wanted, the culture that was so corrupt that its players were murdering each other, to being a national champion where the story of Christ was told on national TV because of their commitment to Jesus, others, and you. And if Scott Drew can do that in a basketball program, I wonder what you can do in your 18 years of influence as a parent. Some of you come out of backgrounds where Christ was not honored. Some of you come out of backgrounds where you stepped from a Christian family. 
But whatever you stepped from and stepped into as parents, you've got 18 years. What will you do with your 18 years to raise the next generation? What will you do to take your children from confessing to cross-carrying? What will you do that will forever bless them and this world for all eternity because of the legacy that they live behind? You've got 18 years and counting. Father, we just confess to you that one of the most intimidating things that you have asked us to do is to raise up the next generation. God, as I, I look at my own children, I think about how time has flown with them and, and the blessed moments we've had, but Lord, also the challenges that we have. We recognize, Lord, we are so dependent upon your grace for this. We are imperfect parents. We are imperfect people, and yet we long, Lord, to shine for you. And Lord, whether we are parents or whether we are aunts and uncles or grandparents or whether we are youth volunteers or whether we are in, in our early 20s and just wanting to remain faithful and, and impact the next generation for Christ, Lord, we give ourselves to you and we pray that we would lead the way in going from merely confessing to cross-carrying. Help us to take up our cross daily, Lord. Help us to follow you. Help us to lose our lives for you and somehow in the midst of it to find it. We confess you as Lord, but we don't stop there. Lord, today we take up our crosses and we choose to follow wherever you lead. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.